If you have your Bibles, take them and turn to the book of Philippians. And as you're doing so, a little personal anecdote. I think you can relate to this. It's, it's hard to look back at some of our old pictures that was taken of us in the 1980s. Uh, there's one I particularly cringe over when I look at it. It had to have been the late 80s. I have my tube socks on up, up tall with the little stripes on the top of it, if you know what those looked like. And my shorts were short. <laughs> If you remember those, you know, the oversized Speedo size. And, um, and I have a fuchsia-colored T-shirt, and on it, it reads, Jesus, the way, in neon green, the truth, in neon pink, the life, in, in you know, flashing neon yellow. And I, 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 think, I cringe at that when I look back, because somebody made a royalty on that sale. Somebody... Some, there's some businessman in Hong Kong who thought that it would be a great idea to take one of the most powerful passages in all the Bible and create the ultimate uh, fashion faux pas. <laughs> and that's what we talk about when we talk about cup, uh, coffee cup verses. Coffee cup verses. Passages that have so stirred Christian hearts and minds that we have thrown them on coffee mugs and t-shirts And on bumper stickers. These passages are short. These passages are memorable. They're magnificent in their content. And sadly, they're they're quite marketable. I think uh, you have seen something like this, maybe even in your own cupboard. For example, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Have you ever had a cup of uh, good French roast? I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Um, do not be anxious about anything. Philippians 4.6 Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say it, rejoice. Philippians 4.4 4. When you start to study the, the letter to the Philippians, you find that it is chock full of these kinds of verses. And actually, it's a lot of fun as a pastor to get to preach on them because... We have a superficial level of knowledge of these, but once we begin to dig a little deeper and once we begin to see the larger context of the passages, you hopefully you sense the deep profundity of what's actually being communicated. Hopefully you'll walk away from the sermon feeling a little of that because we get the very best of them. The, arguably the best passage, the best line that the Apostle Paul ever wrote, and arguably the best verse in all of the Bible, arguably, verse 21. So let's go there. Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. I will do a little bit of commentary as we read, just to give you a heads up. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. In other words, my imprisonment has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard or imperial guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Basically, every large Roman city, every city of significant Roman influence had within it stationed a garrison of special soldiers and they were called it sounds like right out of, out of Star Wars, the Imperial Guard. The Imperial Guard knew the gospel. 
They were very familiar. If you said the word euangelion, gospel, they'd be like, yeah, we know the gospel. The gospel of Caesar. That a new emperor has come to the throne and he has brought peace and justice to the world. We're part of his peacekeeping force. We come in peace. (laughs) They're very familiar with the gospel. And they've met this Jewish, short Jewish guy who is now in prison, who came along and said, there's a new gospel. There is a new king who has come, not only to assume the throne of Rome, but to assume the throne of the universe. If if that's not grandiose terms, I don't know what. And he is summoning every man, woman, boy, and girl to bow the knee and to confess, just like we normally confess uh, Caesar as Curios, Caesar is Lord. Now he's expecting people to confess Jesus is Lord. Well, who is this Jesus? Oh, the new king happens to be a Jew they crucified back in Jerusalem a few years ago. So they had to think that, here's the point, they had to think that the Apostle Paul was a lunatic. Anybody that would go around saying things is not so as that ought to be locked up behind bars. But Paul says, I'm just happy that people are talking about Jesus. Verse 14. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. And he's happy because they're talking about the gospel of Christ. Verse 15. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this, I rejoice. Here's the other comment I wanted to make. Who are these guys, and what are they doing? What, is, what motivates them? Well, apparently, the people that Paul is referring to in verses 15 through 18 are, did you catch the word? Brothers. He, in spite of the fact that they are you know, going around preaching Christ with totally wrong motives, Paul says these are, he still regards them as fellow Christians. And he still regards it as a good thing that they're, they're preaching Christ. He says, yes, their motives are wrong. It sounds like they're probably trying to gain attention to themselves, maybe win some of the hearts of Paul's followers after them. But the good news is that they preach the message right. They preach the gospel right. Motives wrong, gospel is right. Okay, we get that so far. What's fascinating is when you read on the book of Philippians, Paul is going to say something in the very next chapter to the church. He's going to say this. Do nothing from impure motives. Do nothing out of selfish ambition and rivalry. The very thing that these guys were doing, he tells them not to do. But his response to the fact that they're doing it is to rejoice because the message is right even if the motives are wrong. Follow me here. I think what we do is we get it backwards. It's very common in Christian circles for us to excuse 
that preacher over there at that church or that teacher over there, maybe at that Christian school, who, yeah, I mean, he's got the message a little messed up, but he, I know that he's sincere. I know that his heart is in the right place. But we, we reverse it, is what I'm trying to say. We say, well, if the motive is right and the message is wrong, that's okay. We kind of give him a pass. But that's, that's really not what Paul would say. I mean, ideally, we would agree, motives and message ought to match. But if they, if they don't, the one thing that you have to make sure you're on top of is that the faith is being accurately communicated. And because it was, because of this, I rejoice. Next paragraph. And I will continue to rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help given me by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet, what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to, de- to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus might overflow on account of me. The, the Apostle Paul, even in prison, is a joyful, happy sort of bloke. If you, to put it in a British, British way, a joyful, happy sort of bloke. At least that's the sense that I have when I read his letters. He's rejoicing over everything. It seems like he looks at situations and he tries to find the, the positive, the good in each and every situation. Even the fact that he's in prison. Now this is not the worst of his imprisonments. If I'm right, if I read the history accurately, I don't remember if I told you this last week, but I think this is an early Ephesian imprisonment. He's in prison in Ephesus. It's, it's not so bad. This is not his second Roman imprisonment that takes place when you read 2 Timothy and you hear he's, he's tremendously depressed and discouraged when he's talking to Timothy. It's, it's not that. This is, as far as prisons are concerned, a not so bad one to be in. But the man is happy. That he is a joyful kind of guy. He has seen the power of God at work. He has started new churches. If we were to look at his ministry career arc, we would say that he's at the very top. He's experienced tremendous ministry success. If, and we say this all the time, that one of the keys to happiness in life is that you have good friends. Well, Paul had friends all around the world at this point. He's, okay, you get rich, full, and happy as Paul's life was. He is still eager to leave this world. That's what he says. He doesn't say, I'm willing to die. He doesn't say, I'm ready to die. Neither of those statements are strong enough. He puts it plainly, provocatively, 
in, uh, in, verses, in one of the verses. He says, I am eager to die. And this is not Hamlet. This is not a melancholy Hamlet pacing along through the, the corridors of the palace speaking about his distaste for life. This is not a suicidal man. This is not somebody who's really thinking about in, in a morbidly um, awful way taking his life. No, this is, as I tried to maybe overly belabor the point, a very happy man who's living the most noble, successful Christian life that has ever been lived apart from Jesus. And what he says is the best Christian life that can be lived in no way compares with what it is like to die in Christ. To die in Christ is better by far, he says. And that's what I desire. If you are a young or inexperienced Christian, you may not really know what he's talking about here. You may not be familiar with what it, what it is like to long for death. Again, and not in a... Not in a morbid sense, but like a positive sense of, I am eager to die. Um, you may not be familiar with that. Most of us, we grow up, of course, dreading death. I, it would seem like when I was a boy, the time of the day that I thought most about death was, do you remember when you thought most about death? It's when you, you lay down at night in bed. Maybe it was subconscious because the bedtime prayer at my house we prayed, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Like, why are we talking about this to a five-year-old right before he goes to bed? But I would lay there and, and I would think about, what is it going to be like to die? And will it happen to me tonight? When you've got your nightlight on over on the wall there, do you know what's the darkest part of your room at night? It just so happens to be the corners of the ceiling up above because the light doesn't get up there. And so, uh, confessions of a boy. Um, I, <laughs> I would look at those corners. They're all dark. And I'm like, is that uh, a goblin up there? Is that some type of imminent danger up there? Is that what's going to take me? Uh, is, is it going to take my life tonight? And I, I was afraid. And you, Paul, Paul's not afraid. Paul's eager. He says, I am caught in a dilemma, actually. A dilemma between two extremely attractive options. Live or die. It's like the quarterback who's being recruited by Boise State or Chris Peterson at UW you know, you can't go wrong. Both options are a boyhood dream come true. He says, I am torn between the two. Actually, I feel pulled in both directions. But do you know what I actually prefer? Okay, I have here my Greek New Testament. I bring out my Greek New Testament not to wow you with my Greek speaking abilities because I have very few of them. <laughs> These days, what ends up happening is us pastors, we get trained in Greek in seminary and then we forget most of it within a few years. I've brought my Greek New Testament to show you just the sheer simplicity of this sentence in verse 21. Like even I, having forgot almost all my Greek, 
I can read it fine. I just can't translate it, which is the, the big issue, isn't it? Verse 21. Verse 21. Gar for imoi, imoi to me, ta zain for to me, ta to zain from Zoe, life, for me to live, Christos. Christ, Kai and Ta Apothanen, that's a little harder one, Apothanen, to live, or to die, rather, Kurdos, gain. It's, it's so simple. For, to me, to live, Christ, to die, gain. Why? Because Paul measures everything by virtue of of its proximity to Jesus Christ. He says, if I'm going to live, I'm going to live near Christ. And if I am going to die, I'm going to be that much more near Christ. He says, "For, for a Christian to die is to be so completely with Christ that in comparison to all of our fellowship with Christ in this world, I mean, don't you feel Jesus near you sometimes? Like in the Word, in prayer, in communion, through the Holy Spirit. He says all of that, though, can't even begin to compare. It's so much less than we will have after we die. And he says, I don't expect to die. I actually expect to come back and return to you guys at Philippi, and I'll continue to do my gospel ministry. But if you gave me the choice... We know what I would choose. NBC News ran a story last year of a Nigerian man who was in a village when Boko Haram attacked. The attack occurred prior to the abduction of those those 200 schoolgirls before they took them off. The man's name, Habalu Adamu, he's age 40. He thought they were soldiers, just government soldiers on patrol near his home, but when he saw their robes, and their AK-47s, he knew they were not from the army. They told him that they were there to do the work of Allah. His wife Vivian, his son David, age seven, looked on as four men forced their way indoors, and they asked whether uh, um, uh, Habalu was a member of the army or a police force. He says, I'm not. And they asked me then, will you convert to Islam? He said, I will not. Are you prepared to die as a Christian? He said, I felt powerful, unafraid. I don't know why, but I could not deny Christ. So they shot him. They shot him in the neck. You know, neck wounds, I imagine, are very bloody. I mean, blood's gushing everywhere. He falls to the ground. He said, they thought I was dead because they stomped on me twice and shouted, Allahu Akbar. He's bleeding everywhere. And he turns to his wife just before he loses consciousness and he says, Honey, take care of, of David. I, she's crying. She's sobbing. Um, neither of us thought I would survive. And then I told her, To live in this world was to live for Christ. And then I passed out. To live in this world is to live for Christ. When you are sitting at the lunchtime dinner table or on the picnic blanket later today 
Can you look in your wife's eye and not turn your eye down and, and shame at all and say, honey, to live in this world is to live for Christ. You don't have a wife. You have a, uh, you have a close friend. Can you look your Christian friend in the eye and say, for me, to live in this world is to live for Christ. Can you say that to your kids? That that's what I've discovered. The one thing, the one piece of advice I, I would give to you is, and I, I, you know, God slay me, slay me in the heart. I don't know that as a pastor, shame on me as a pastor. I don't know that I could say that without averting my gaze, looking away. If you can't say that, then honestly, what is keeping you from that? There's been a lot of sermons preached on Philippians 1.21. One of the most common points that is made, and I'm going to make it again to you, is that when you do the for me to live is, and then you fill in the blank, right? There's the line, fill in the blank. For me to live is blank. If you put anything into that blank, that doesn't, you'll begin with a capital C and end with a lowercase t. Anything else, and the second half of the verse is not true. For me to, if for me to live is the standard answer that pretty much everybody in Boise gives, then for me, for me to die, that's not gain. That is loss. If for me to live is, and it's, it gets so tiresome to say the same things over again, but I mean, our idols are usually the same idols. If for me to live is sex, if for me to live is the affection of the opposite sex, if for me to live is money, if for me to live is professional sex, then to die is not gain. It's the ultimate source of loss. If for me to live is family, we talked about this before. A hundred years from now, nobody, not even members of your own family, 150, 200 years from now, they're not even going to know your name. I mean, none of us actually even know the names of our great-great-grandfathers. Certainly not our great-great-great. I mean, we're going to be so totally forgotten. For me to live for even great things like family is, it's going to be lost. There's a story of a Roman soldier who approached his commanding officer. Officer happened to be Julius Caesar. And he asked for his permission to commit suicide. He claimed that his existence was totally wretched and miserable. He saw no point in going on with life. He said, all that's left for me to do is, is die. And in this, maybe fable, the Caesar looks at him and with a mixture of pity and contempt, probably more contempt than pity, he says to him, man... Have you ever actually lived? Were you ever truly alive? And that's a question I feel sometimes that it would be nice to ask a modern person, a secular person in Boise, are you really alive? I mean, go on social media. We've got a plethora of, of totally bored people, bored to tears. Um, people who are empty, people who are drained by an unrelenting work schedule. People who are drained by an unrelenting play schedule. Um, and it's not that these people are poor. 
Not most of us in this city are not poor. Often our bank accounts are doing fairly well. And it's not like these people have nothing to do. Their calendar is full of appointments. But if they were being honest, they would have to admit that there is no sense of purpose and direction in my life. For me to live as Christ, uh, the story of the Nigerian brother, it, it struck me simply because it shouldn't have to come to that. Like, you and I don't need to wait for a near-death experience with some brushback from death to, to get this into our minds and our hearts, that the only life worth living is the one that Paul describes. Like, I, I felt it this week. I felt like I need to know this right now. I need to know, I need to not wa- waste a single other minute of my life living for something else. I need, I need to get both sides of the coin. Uh, heads to live as Christ. Tails to die as gain. God is flipping the coin and I, I need to get to the point where I am eager for whatever one turns up. And so do you. And so I have a great Scotty Smith prayer that I want to close with. I've used these before. Great pastor. You can pray this if you wish. Dear Lord Jesus, my heart resonates with Paul's words in Philippians 121 this morning. Being with you in heaven would be better by far, better by far than any other option afforded me in this life. And I'm glad to say that and pray that. Not not actually because I'm in a funk, not because I'm in a season of Eeyore-ness or or facing some unpleasant task or disappointing news. Just the opposite, Lord. I am in a place of contentment, peace, and joy for which I give you thanks. You have given me a full life and a many-chaptered story. Yes, with enough brokenness and sadness to keep me humble and in constant need of your grace, and with enough adventure and joy to intensify my longings for the day that you'll return and make all things new. But until that day, Lord Jesus, be my center, be my center, be my boast, be my delight. Fill, focus, and free me for the privilege of working for the progress and joy and the faith of many other people. I can't think of anything I'd rather succeed at more than helping other people come more fully alive to your gospel and your kingdom. Then he concludes, If, Lord, in your sovereign plan, you determine to give me one, ten, or twenty-five more years of life, May they be as full as your mercy, grace, and love make them. For to live, Lord Jesus, is you. And death is simply gaining more of you. I want more of you. And I want to finish my life offering as much encouragement and hope and as much of you as I possibly can to as many people as I can. And I pray this in your strong and loving name. Amen. I do have one more thing I'm going to say sort of at the table. I like to talk about family kind of matters at the table. Usually in my own home, if the kids are about to get uh, a long, important (laughs) lecture-like conversation, (laughs) 
that doesn't, it's not a conversation, but, you know, it's at the family table. It's at dinner that I usually deliver these. And there's one major flaw that can take place when somebody looks at Philippians 121. A, a wrong conclusion that they can reach from that passage is it relates to the death of loved ones. And that is, a lot of people conclude, well, I shouldn't cry because they're in a better place. Like, based on everything I just told you, you might say that's a perfectly natural conclusion. I shouldn't pry, cry because they're in a better place. They've gone to be with the Lord. They're in, they, they get more of Christ and all of that. Well, that would actually be a wrong conclusion, though. And we know that by a careful reading of the book of Philippians. Remember I said that Paul was in prison and they, the church at Philippi had sent an emissary bringing money to care for him. That emissary's name was Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus, while he's in Ephesus, becomes gravely ill and almost dies. And we'll read about it later in the book. Paul says he was deeply distressed of heart. He said, actually, God spared me sorrow upon sorrow when he let Epaphroditus live and recover. Paul actually sends the letter to the Philippians back to the church by hand of Epaphroditus. But Paul says, I would have been devastated. Isn't that interesting? The very guy who says, death is gain, is the same guy who says, I would be devastated if my Christian brother had died. And so, you know, Paul is, he's very realistic. He knows that death is brutal. Death is an enemy. You and I have watched loved ones die. We've watched We've watched some die of terrible diseases. We understand that it's, it's awful to witness. And you should feel sorrow upon sorrow if a loved one dies. That's okay. Paul, said, Paul understands. I just wanted you to realize he understands. Death is bitter, but death is not bittersweet. And you have to hold those two in, in proper tension. I hope that's helpful.